Welcome to the Iron Butterfly Podcast, co-produced by the National Security Institute and the Amazing Women of the IC, better known as AWIC. My name is Megan Jaffer, and I will be your host. 80 years ago, Eloise Page joined the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS, a predecessor for what we recognize today as the United States intelligence community. Page started as a secretary, but worked her way to becoming a case officer, and later, she became the first female chief of station at CIA. Along the way, she earned the nickname Iron Butterfly, known for being a fierce fighter with a core of steel. The Iron Butterfly podcast aims to continue her legacy, inviting the U.S. intelligence community's unsung heroines to share their stories with aspiring IC leaders. On this episode, we are joined by Chitra Savanatham, Chief Technology Officer at Reinventing Geospatial Inc. Chitra has served in executive roles at SAIC, Raytheon, and Incutel. She is an expert in artificial intelligence and machine learning with over 25 years of experience working for aerospace companies, the IC, and the Department of Defense. Chitra also owns a brewing company called The Craft of Brewing. Chitra, we're really excited to have you today. How are you? Very good. Thank you, Megan. I want to congratulate you. This is your first week at the new job. I hope everything's going well and you're enjoying yourself this first week. I know it's like drinking from a fire hose when you first start a new job. It is. Uh, I am having a blast. And I'll tell you, for anyone who's listening, uh, 100% of the time, it's all about culture. So I'm, uh, like I said, having a blast. Oh, good. So I thought to get us started, um, we usually like to ask our guests if they can talk a bit about how you got involved and how you started in the IC. Sure. So I I guess if I have to think about it, my uh, entree into the IC was definitely by accident. If I think back to high school, um, I was always torn between art-related fields and math and science. And I remember I ended up applying to 11 different schools for 11 widely differing programs. And I think they ranged from, I remember, journalism at NYU to chemistry at Berkeley. Wow. And what I ended up doing is I ended up going uh, going with uh, the program and uh, putting kind of in the mail my acceptance letter for fine art photography at RIT. So when you look at that range, you can see how like my parents were quite disappointed in my choice. <laughs> I don't know how they could be. You, it sounds like you were a jack of all trades. Yeah. So, it, you know, but what, I guess which trade did I pick, right? And so, as you can imagine, first generation home, Indian parents, that really just wasn't settling, settling well. I did a summer orientation. I remember like prior to when school was starting for the year, and I accidentally stumbled upon this open house for a program called Imaging Science. And I honestly didn't grasp what the path would be from a career perspective about what they described. But what they showed me kind of seemed like a really like perfect blend between the arts and sciences, at least for me and the way I, I thought about it. So I decided to switch majors before starting. And I signed up for this interesting like boutique program and figured that was a good way to appease the parents. <laughs> and honestly, I loved the program. And it did have opportunities to be creative, whether you're thinking about like, you know, computer graphics or developing holograms. Um, or even kind of being more like scientific and engineering oriented around remote sensing. Um, But back to your question about the IC, this was a boutique program and there were a lot of connected threads to this community. It was a a really small class, even when I counted like the master's um, students and the PhD students. 
Um, and, and the program itself was essentially built by industry. It was uh, the government, Kodak, Bosch and Loam, and 3M that all came together to develop what the curriculum would be. Um, really focused on developing folks that could cross that chasm between computer science, optics, physics, systems, engineering, math and stats, and really like kind of the predecessors for how we think about like analytics and AI now, right? Mm-hmm. So it isn't surprising that folks were recruiting out of the program from the IC. Um, and I remember my senior year it was like the fall of my senior year. Um, and every at that time, it was like the, the early days of the dot-com boom or, or maybe the, the peak days of the dot-com boom. So everybody was, you know, counting their air mileage and their points <laughs> they were getting for flying for interviews. And I was literally debating between a great job at Adobe or that lowing, lowest paying kind of government job offer from NEMA. And I decided to go with like that low ball NEMA offer instead. <laughs> And so, like I said, accidental, but now my career really started off in that fashion. And at that time I was set to be a Gavi, but because of like the delays at, in the clearance process at the time, and that's a whole separate conversation, probably for like a, a different day over beers or something. But uh, I had a really savvy uh, government manager that decided, Hey, I'm going to bring you aboard as a contractor and said, we're going to be able to flip the switch. Nothing changes. You're still in the same role that you were in. And because of what they brought me in to do and uh, the way that role was designed, it, it, all I can say is I drank the Kool-Aid quickly and, you know, I became part of the, the IC for, for life, I guess, right? That's and, awesome. Right? You know what I really love about that is that, especially for for young men and women that are in college right now, they might be a freshman, who knows, they might be seniors in high school, and they think they have to have it all figured out, Right. And they think they have to know exactly what they want to do. And I think you're a prime example of, look, you applied to 11 different schools for 11 different majors and, you know, you figured it out along the way. You don't need to know right when you go in and look where you are now. So I think that's pretty cool. It sounds like you didn't expect this would be the path for you initially when you went into college. Could you explain a bit more about what imaging scientists do and what some of their roles are in the IC? Sure. Um, I'd say the big thing in our community is uh, probably in and around remote sensing as far as imaging scientists go. And that's probably because of the breadth of skills that we obtained. Uh, we end up kind of learning how to work across that entire ecosystem pretty easily. So whether it was analyzing satellite data, being part of satellite operations, developing new sensors, working through challenges of moving data across a chip, transmitting down or doing like image compression techniques, right, as you're looking at transmission and, and storage all of this is part of kind of like a, any kind of day in the life of an imaging scientist. Um, and I think that a, a part of that was figuring out new products based on the data or coming up with new techniques, right? So I think as an image scientist, um, not only have I experienced it, but I've seen a lot of my, my friends and colleagues kind of do things across a wide spectrum and across a full life cycle. I think I found that I got lucky in that it's hard for me to imagine really honestly, especially in this day and age, what an imaging mm-hmm. scientist can't do. And and that's just in our world in the IC, right? So if you think about even outside of the IC, and I've I've done some stuff where I've developed some algorithms for like a medical imaging camp- company, commercial printing systems at Kodak back in the day where we were doing like even color algorithms for like your, you know, you know, on the spot, you know, photo printer at the local Walgreens, right? I mean, all of that came down, like all of that is certainly part of the purview of what an imaging scientist 
does or can do. But in the IC, I think that the work we do or, or the work that, you know, this field enables folks to think about is a, a variety of like overhead sensors, IoT sensors, heavy data analysis, AI, and really prepping for like where we are today, right? Because I think more than anything, I've applied how our degree was developed and how systems work and how we think about workflow. And I've, I've utilized it in probably like every fashion and I see it utilized in every fashion because almost anything we do in these days um, involves like either the capture of or the use of or display of imagery or video. And so in my mind, I kind of look at it as like, it's, it's an interesting boutique field mm-hmm. that gave kind of like the best of a lot of different disciplines that is now kind of integrally part of those things that I think are fairly ubiquitous, right? So that's great. Thanks for for that explanation. You know, one thing that I know we've chatted about before is, you know, you went from government to industry, and you have mentioned to me that some of the challenges about being in government and why you moved to industry was not being able to talk about your job when you were working in government. So I would be interested if you could share with us kind of how did you handle that and what role, if any, did that play in your career progression? Sure. And, and to be clear, I was um, still always a contractor, right? So I was, it was just the on-site world versus the off-site gotcha. world. Gotcha. No, good clarification. Supposed to be government. But, and, and, and the funny part is to me, they, since they never treated me um, as anything other than like what I was supposed to be when I, if I was going to be a, a govy at NEMA, it never felt like uh, it was government versus um, contractor, but, but yeah, like it was a, it was a big challenge. Right. And um, I think it's an interesting one. And I'm sure the challenges for young people now are more difficult than it was when I first started. Um, I'd say, so for the early part of my career, for like the first eight years or so, I worked in a classified setting, like purely classified setting on site. Um, You know, I think the, the privileges we had back then were, the, the sites that were more uh, open and willing allowed us to keep our cell phones in our car with the battery pulled out. Right. I mean, that was, mm-hmm. that was the privilege back then. <laughs> um, so sometimes I couldn't even say where I was at, you know, I would say like, Hey, I'm just, uh, I work in Northern Virginia. And for me, it's really, it's really hard, right? I grew up in a typical high touch immigrant household. So it was very challenging for my family it'd be challenging for that. They could only communicate with me during the off hours or early mornings or late at night. Um, and then if I, when I lived out on the West Coast, it was like that plus the time difference, right? And, and to be understanding, like when I when I can't tell them anything about anything, like it's how do you build like that relationship? Like they're, they're used to like more conversation all the time about all the different things that are important to us in our lives. So it was a challenge. And I remember a time uh, in particular when my cousin was visiting me to do an interview um, and I was here up, up in Virginia and she needed to borrow my car so she can go do her interview. So she borrowed my car and I asked her to drop me off at some random intersection. I was like, <laughs> okay, don't, don't pay attention to me. And then I like, I'll, I'll walk to my work from here. And it was like weird for me. It was weird for her. It's just how it was. Um, and I think the hardest thing about that is how honestly all that weirdness became so normal for me. I was on TDY in New Mexico and my folks knew I was moving there for a few months. Obviously it's work related they have no clue what I'm doing, why I'm doing it, where I'm at really on any given moment. And it, it just became the way it was. So they're like, okay, we don't know where you are and who you actually work for. And it became like kind of like the, the running joke. So the output of all this was that I started thinking that the only folks that would really understand any or appreciate anything that I was doing was in this really small cleared community. And so as an attempt to figure out how to broaden myself, I started working on my MBA 
And through that network, I ended up with a job at Incutel. And it was my naive attempt at the time to get out of the black, but (laughs) that never really worked. And what I did instead was learn to really effectively straddle both sides, right? To how to be, how to, how to know what to do and work in the cleared side and how to still keep one foot out in the open. And for the most part, um, I was able to continue to manage this split in my professional and personal life, right? And for me personally and professionally, this was a pivotal moment because I could start to work across a lot of seams and I can figure out whether it's, you know, cleared or unclassified or whether it's, you know, emerging tech or like existing um, you know, large program or something like that. And I learned how much I actually enjoyed working across those seams. But I will note that in that playbook, right, that playbook I had about compartmentalizing my <laughs> life and, you know, keeping ha- those those clean separations between like, you know, the personal and professional roles. Um, obviously, in this past year, all my roles collided regularly on any given day. And it's, uh, I'm sure, been like the same story for like every working mom in our industry but it's been an interesting, weird notion, right? Because it, it doesn't really affect anything. And like that, that that playbook I had, right, was it was really unnecessary. So I, like I said, I learned how to work across those seams. Yeah. And those collisions don't really end up becoming an impact as much as I thought they would. I'd like to talk a little bit more about some of the differences you noticed between working in government and, and in industry, as well as the importance of bringing the, a variety to the table. Yeah, for sure. So when I think about my career and the folks that I have interfaced with, I think my main takeaway is that we're probably all more similar than different and that this industry is actually quite comfortable with the unusual or the wacky or the different kind of ideas or or anything, but in a good way, right? Um, I think often there are assumptions about what we do and how we do it, and we think that there are run rules Uh, depending on which side you're on, whether you're on the government side of the house or whether you're in industry. But, you know, at the end of the day, what I found is that we're a small community. We're actually all on the same team and Mm -hmm. that any of our competitors can be our teammates and that that cross-pollination across agencies makes it such that we're actually more blended and collective across our government customers and across industries, especially when we're trying to solve these more complex problems. And I find it easier to think that everyone is basically our teammates, right? And so then it makes it easier to like focus less on like the us versus them. It's really not like, you know, my customer versus my my colleagues internally versus my competitors, right? It's it's really just all of us trying to like do something. Right. And and I feel like on that note, like I've been really fortunate to work with people who are super passionate about mission. Um, and with that passion, I've noticed that folks on the government side of the industry, of uh, government side or on industry side, are, are both willing to look at and explore fresh ideas and approach something differently or even take risks. Um, I mean, like, so don't get me wrong, are there folks that are risk averse and keep their heads down? Yes, certainly. I've found that there are a lot of those folks, but there are bigger 100%. rewards in thinking about things differently, right? And And we all bring a lot of that varietal thinking, we just have to kind of stick with it and understand that those those folks that are not quite there, um, or it's because they have a different mission set to kind of focus on, right? And so when I look at it, and we look at like that variety, that diversity we bring to the table, and I'm not talking about diversity, like, you know, corporate diversity awareness training and stuff. Um, I'm really talking about like bringing our whole selves and our varied experiences to that creative problem solving, 
And, you know, anyone that knows me knows that I'm, I'm probably seemingly ne- a never ending basket of crazy ideas. But that's that's me. Right. That's part of who I am. That's the part of me that never cared about what I can or can't do or what I can or can't say. Um, and it stems from random experiences from being from either from the Midwest or being from a first generation Indian immigrant family or being a woman or being a mom or being an entrepreneur or some mundane interaction with like friends or family or even strangers. Right. And I think, you know, I want to say like in one of your previous episodes, one of your speakers mentioned, you know, being authentic. And I think that's the key to variety, right? The variety you bring to the table, I think is that authenticity and by bringing that and encouraging that in others, then I think that's what we actually do that actually helps us like move faster through our really tough problems. And, and that's what I find that, you know, people latch on to whether they're, you know, my customers in government or whether they're my colleagues in industry, right? Because we're all, we're all actually looking for that. And I think sometimes we, we don't bring it because we think we shouldn't. Right. Oh, I'd love that. So, you know, one thing I've heard you say is you shouldn't self-limit. Can you share with our audience what you mean by that and what that means to you? Yeah. So, I'd say in my mind, uh, I found that earlier in my career, I might have, you know, actually waited for somebody to introduce me or give me room to say something. And it was kind of like paying attention more to my surroundings. Mm -hmm. Problem is, I wasn't really good at being like a wallflower, (laughs) as you can imagine. (laughs) Um, That didn't really work well for me. Um, I mentioned that my time at Intel was a, a pretty pivotal time for me. And part of it was because of the level of access that we had with some of the, you know, very prominent people in the IC. And at that time in my career, I think it would have been very natural and easy for me to be in awe of these various SESs that we engaged with, mm-hmm. of the uh, sissy or hipsy staffers, of the directors that who would even come and visit. Um, but it turns out they were just like the rest of us, right? They They were, as I described earlier, passionate about solving mission-oriented problems, really excited about technology, actually interested in hearing from us. And they would engage with us as like ordinary people for the most part, right? And it was our responsibility to do the same. Uh, When I think about self-limiting, I really think about it as it's easy to think that there's a rule that defines who you talk to and about what and in what circumstance, but there really isn't. Um, now, don't get me wrong, there are social norms, and we all have to strive to like not offend anyone. <laughs> right. But I think that actually, there are many doors that are open and many people who can help you along the way. And it's up to all of us as individuals to take action. In my experience, this is a small community. And, and Megan, I'm, I know you're aware of this, because I think this is the sentiment at the heart of um, AWIC. Uh, I really think that the community is really there for all of us to leverage and we should take it. Right. I don't personally put a whole lot of stock into like the, like could have, should have, would have thinking. And I think that's because that's the kind of thinking that, that comes about when we do limit ourselves, when we want to do something and we, you know, put the, the restraints on and we don't do what, what we think would have been the right thing to do, or we don't say that thing that, um, what's on the top of our mind that we think would have contributed. And instead, my my philosophy and, you know, maybe gets you in trouble a little bit, but you can always like, you know, get out of trouble. <laughs> instead, you just do it, right? And you just say it and you're, you know, obviously being thoughtful about how you approach things. But I think in most cases, you're, you, you will be surprised at where where it gets you. At least for me, like I, 
you know, I'm always surprised at where I'm at. And, you know, uh, I think I'm quite lucky and fortunate for where, what I'm at, where I'm at and to do something that I actually enjoy. A hundred percent. I think people get so caught up in, and it's easy, right? You come to DC, you might be young or you might be new to the industry and you get so caught up in the celebrity of some of these folks, like, you know, the Hipsy staff or the director of this or the CEO of this company, but you don't realize that they were all in the, you know, they're, they're there to listen to you as well. And they put yeah. their pants on one leg at a time as same as you. So you got to get past the, uh, they're, they're just people just like you. So uh, I, I love that. In 2019, you were named the AI Industry Executive of the Year. How do you think uh, you got there? And what advice do you have for other people who are working to break into that field? Yeah, so I'll start off by saying I think the AI field has been on uh, quite a journey for decades. And unfortunately, is at the heart of a lot of like buzzwordiness these days. So I'm just going to like throw that out there as a caveat. And I'll say that, you know, personally, I feel like I haven't achieved anything on my own. Like it just, it's, it's an awkward thing to be like, oh, you were AI industry executive of the year, right? Uh, it still feels weird to get awards like that. When at the end, I'm like, I, I think it's the consequence of so many advancements by so many people. Um, but I do certainly appreciate it. Um, in my opinion, I think I got here because at the end of the day, I've always been interested in data and in, in, in optimizing what we're doing to be able to do something a little bit better or a little bit faster or a little bit more automated. And oddly enough, I think, like I said uh, in the earlier questions, right, my field kind of like set me up a little bit for it, right? Imaging science has been kind of the right field that matured the quickest to, to develop and leverage AI for all intents and purposes. Um, and, and some examples even that are like unrelated to the IC is like, I remember like in uh, my academic days, one of my professors at RIT, Roger Easton, developed some early kind of, you can call them AI now, like if you were going to tag them as something, um, AI algorithms decades ago to identify and analyze the writings in like the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, and so it's just an example that like at the end, image analysis, whether it's, you know, pixels um, or mapping data or, you know, OCR that we all take for granted these days, right, um, has been at the forefront of this AI discussion for quite some time. So on some level, um, I think it's a bit of luck that I stumbled into this particular field um, and it brought me here and I, it gave me the opportunities to to be here at this moment in time where we are, you know, putting it on this uh, elevated kind of R&D platform, right? Uh, but regardless of what I did in my career, I found that there's a, a different kind of connective tissue in it for me. And and I kind of think maybe it's like my, just my general predispositions. Um, I've always been curious and intrigued by different approaches to doing things, right? Like how do I, how do, I do something that's non-conventional and break the norms a little bit, right? And see is a different approach that, could get me there or does does it not get me there? Um, and, and personally, I believe hands down, you know, this is like the, the life, left brain, right brain problem. Like I believe hands down in math and physics. But as it turns out with data and stats, there is a lot of creative liberty in how math and physics are applied to a problem. And that to me makes it very fun. Um, and eventually, you know, that, those kind of things that have that creative uh, liberty, you know, it could make an algorithm or or anything, you know, a little unpredictable or biased. 
And this is, I think, what's great about what's happening now and something like, you know, this field of AI. It, it all depends on what we're trying to do with it. Um, there's a lot more that we don't know than what we do know. And we have to really engage in creative, broad thinking while being grounded in math and hard sciences and software disciplines. Um, and my advice to anyone who's looking to be in this particular field or any new emerging field is to be patient um, related to how the world kind of gets there with you, but have a really high level of curiosity and not just the curiosity around like the tech, but also the curiosity around how it will affect our lives and what new economies might develop and which economies die and, you know, how does it, what does it take and how long does it take to actually consume this new thing that is, you know, potentially game changing and what does it actually take to create global change? Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot to like make the entire world, you know, move just an inch forward. Right. Right. Um, But I don't believe there's an easy path or a straightforward path. I think it's a lot of noise, a lot of uncertainty. And at the heart of it, we're all trying to prepare ourselves for future problems that we can't describe. So to me, I kind of look at it as that's the fun opportunity behind it, right? So if if people are looking into this and looking into how do I get into this or how do I get into similar fields, I think just having that intellectual curiosity and, you know, that fortitude to be like, I'm cool with the unknown unknown, I think mm-hmm. is the biggest thing because it's like you you don't know. And there's there's a lot of, uh, you know, course correction that you'll learn along the way. And, you know, the the more you're you know, happy with that, and the more you actually thrive on that, then I think the the better you'll be. So I want to switch gears a little bit, because we mentioned it in your bio, but our audience may not know that you own your own brewery. So can you talk a bit about your company and how you found yourself as an expert in AI and in brewing beer? (laughs) (laughs) it's it's kind of funny, and it's all happenstance, right? I think that's the story of my life, that lots of little accidents, right? Um, but that's another example, I think, of what happens when you just give yourself the latitude to do something. Um, so my husband was doing a lot of home brewing at home to a point where I was just like, I think I lost the the garage in the basement. And I was like, what the hell's going on here? Um, and he wasn't really satisfied with his job. He was uh, an army guy in the past, worked at NASA for a while. He was basically kind of an engineering type that really likes to get hands on with anything. And we were just talking out loud one day and I suggested that, hey, maybe we should just do this. Like, let's just make this a thing and like, you know, figure out how to like run this business. And in my mind, I was like, hey, I'm, I've been plugged into the startup tech community for some time. I have some idea of the aspects of being an entrepreneur. Um, but as we decided to just roll the dice on this, we we did it with a couple like basic things that we had to like keep in the back of our mind um, that I think are fundamental to like, you know, I guess how, how we think about this and like how we have to like manage day by day, right. Is, mm-hmm. you know, number one, we, there's a lot we don't know. So we have to like know that we're learning a lot from everyone and anyone. Um, number two, there's just, there's no time in our lives where there's going to be a less risky, you know, ideal like moment for us to do this. We're like, okay, if we want to do it, let's just do it. And uh, number three, that is just going to take a lot out of us, right? Personally, professionally, financially, and everything. And we just got to like roll with the punches. So we decided to do it. Um, and it's been a long road, longer than probably most people think in terms of like getting a brick and mortar business in a highly regulated industry. <laughs> um, and, and especially kind of coupled then with like us turning to, we, we were open two years when the pandemic shut us down. So like all of that stuff has been an, an interesting kind of learning experience and continues to be. 
but it's a journey and it's uh, it's a journey where every day we learn uh, something new and we learn how to balance the risk and just figure out what we have to do and, and what we do next, right? What, what's that priority thing that we have to do and then just keep moving forward. Um, my husband runs the place day to day. I think now it's gotten to where like I, there's lots of parts of the operation that I have no clue how the hell it, it actually works. Um, but I do a lot of the back office and finance work to kind of keep everything up and running. And the funny part to me is that with my, you know, IC professional life and this notion of being, you know, an expert in AI or whatever, and even my personal life, uh, along with the brewery, the, the cool, funny, you know, great happenstance is how they all collide together. And on any given day, I feel like I'm juggling a lot of balls. And trust me, there's uh, probably the vast larger majority of them that are dropping left and right. But it turns out we're still moving forward. Um, and data's everywhere. And on some some days, I think like it, it, one day I'll have time to analyze all the data that's in front of me. Signals are ubiquitous. And, you know, more often than not, it's not like a lack of compute. It's not a lack of skills or anything. It's it's time. Time is my limiting factor, right? And time yeah. Times what we're always like up against. So we've got, you know, our all of our our lives colliding. And I think to me, that's actually the value of why AI is here. That's why it's critical. That's why we're making it. That's why we're consuming it. We're we're gonna all buy ourselves back some time, I hope. <laughs> but it's it's fun and I, I I really love to see and experience that convergence on a on a regular basis. Wow, what a great way to circle back to AI and bring it all together. That was great. So as you know, we end each episode with asking the same question of, of our guests. And so in keeping in the name of the podcast, Iron Butterfly, if you could give yourself a code name, what would it be and why? Okay, so this was hard. I, like, I was thinking and thinking and thinking, and I was trying to like get something that was appropriate, but not too off the wall. And what I decided to go with and it's going to be a two-name one, is a fermented chimera. And mainly for all the double entendres that I can uh, kind of pull together with this phrase. <laughs> I love it. So tell me, explain it. Yes. So fermented because, well, I got the brewery, uh, but also because I just have like a natural tendency to try to stir things up all the time. I think I just, I can't help myself. I think it's just part of who I am. And Chimera, because I think it, there's a couple funny anecdotes, but in the early days of um, uh, autocorrect technology, no matter what I did and what other people did, my name would magically always autocorrect to Chimera. So I think it's just kind of a funny fitting thing um, that actually also, like I said, in the double entendre um, uh, notion has a, a good meaning for me, right? So like, if you think about it, um, from a mythology perspective and from a perspective in terms of how it's manifested in nature, a chimera is a mix between creatures. And if there's one thing that I've learned about myself that's been consistent throughout my career and in my life in general, it's that I never really neatly fit into any role or prescribed norm. I've never really done well with swim lanes. I'm most comfortable wearing multiple hats and Turns out uh, what's hard for other people to do is to figure out like what bucket to put me in. But that's often my best asset. So uh, that's what I came up with. I decided fermented chimera. That's my oh. mixed bag creature that I that likes to stir, stir things up all the time. 
I love it. And it, it describes you perfectly. Uh, it, it really does. Chitra, this was really great. It was a refreshing episode. I think people are going to learn a lot. Um, and I'm just thankful that you joined us and you gave a little bit of your time today. I hope you had fun with us. And um, I'm excited to see where you go with the new job. And I can't wait to drink some of your beer. Thanks, Megan. Uh, Like I said, I'm really honored to have been asked to do this podcast and even be associated with the men and women in the IC that have contributed in this community and uh, really excited about what we can do going forward on all fronts. Awesome. This has been an episode of Iron Butterfly, co-produced by the amazing women of the IC and the National Security Institute at George Mason Scalia Law School. To find out more about AWIC, email us at awicpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. You can also learn more about NSI and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you like the show, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Lastly, we'd like to thank Resolute Unicorn and Wise Wisteria for making this amazing series possible. We'd also like to thank Grant Haver for production assistance. Stay fierce and we'll talk next time.